You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. It's good to see all of you here this afternoon. My name is Eric Bonkowski, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. In uh, 1997, there was a man named Joshua Harris who wrote a book that kind of took the uh, contemporary evangelical Christian world by storm. It was a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And it was basically an argument to move away from dating and to return to more of a courtship model of relationships. Um, I was in college at the time. I read the book and I wrote sort of a critique slash response to the book that I entitled, I Kissed, I Kissed Dating, Goodbye, Goodbye. <laughs> and the reason I tell you that is just for that joke. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, Joshua Harris um, went on to become a pastor, and he was influential in certain circles of Christendom. If you've never heard of him before, that's okay. doesn't really matter. A few years ago, in 2019, he returned to some level of um, knowledge because he announced that he was deconstructing his faith. And he was one of the more prominent examples of someone doing that, deconstructing their faith. Now, um, I've talked about this word deconstruction a couple of times. Basically, what it means is to um, critique or to debunk aspects of Christianity. And in its, um, in, in its fullest forms, it goes on to basically say that all all claims of truth or all moral claims are suspect. Um, and, and so that's what Joshua Harris did, and um, it, it's become sort of a phenomenon in contemporary life. Um, perhaps you've heard of it. If you haven't, that's okay too. But the reason I talk about it is because I want to address it some today. I've sort of alluded to it in past messages, but today I'm going to talk about it um, directly. And I hope to do that with, um, with empathy uh, for those of you who maybe have, have kind of been in a process of deconstruction or have been curious about what that is. And for those of you who have been walking alongside friends who are somewhere along that path. And so today I want us to talk about this important topic and do it with both love and with truth. Because I think we have to marry those two things together as we, as we talk about it. And as we go through this message, I'm going to rely on two things. One is a recent article from Tim Keller, uh, the former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church up in New York. Uh, he wrote a really helpful article in kind of classic Kellerian ways. It's full of insight and sort of profundity, but it's not too long. Um, and, and the second thing I'm going to rely on is something that he references in that article, and it's a 1965 sermon by a British preacher named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And, and um, so both of these things, that are, if you're interested, you can go and find them or email me and I'll, I'll uh, connect you with them. And this sermon that uh, was preached in 1965 was on a, a passage in Mark chapter 8. And that's what we're going to read together today to get into this topic a little bit more. So if you have a Bible, 
Um, Open up your Bible to Mark chapter 8. These words also are printed in the worship guide. You can follow along there. Although it's, it's always helpful to read from the Bible because even today I'm going to allude to some, um, a couple verses that are just outside of the text that we read. Um, and you may find it helpful to um, read along in the Bible. So Mark 8 verses 22 through 26. This is God's word for us this afternoon. Here's what it says. And they, and the they here is Jesus and his disciples, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, even through this passage, we recognize that... We recognize that our hearts are blind to your truth. And so we ask that our Savior Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, would uh, touch our eyes, touch the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the truth, that we would know his love, and that we would respond with worship and mission. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit. Amen. So what in, what in the world does this passage have to do with this phenomenon of deconstruction? It's a fair question. The, the way it connects, I think, is not in that Jesus heals a man. There are plenty of passages in the Gospels where Jesus performs different healings. It's in the way that he heals this particular man. And in fact, as I was reading, maybe it stood out to you, what, what's kind of the, the double clutch in this healing? Why, is, why does Jesus touch the man's eyes and then have to touch them again? Well, that's, that's the secret connection point here. Because I think when it comes to deconstruction and we comes to most of our lives, we can identify with this sense of seeing who God is, who Jesus is, but still struggling to see who he is and to know who he is, just like this man in the story. Uh, That's uh, how it works. Joshua Harris, for example, your friends, people in your lives who have at one time seen the wonder and the glory of the Bible and Jesus that it presents, but as time goes on, they're blinded to that or their vision grows fuzzy, it grows uh, unclear. And the, the whole reason that Jesus heals this way, I think, is to prove a point to his disciples and to us. Because in the passage immediately preceding what I read, the disciples, Jesus' followers, those who are closest to him, demonstrate the fact that they struggle with blindness too. If you look just a few verses before this, um, Jesus says to them, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not 
remember. You see, Jesus is directly addressing the blindness of his closest followers. And then he heals this man by touching his eyes twice as a sign to us of the way that he can heal our blindness. And so what the man was suffering from physically, we suffer from spiritually. What affected his eyes affects our hearts and our minds. Seeing and yet not seeing is so pervasive. I think it's, it can be particularly pervasive experience for those of us, and there are many of us in this room who fit this category, who are kind of in emerging adulthood, 20 to 40 years old, say. There, it's this time of life when we've seen, but we struggle to see. Let me explain what I mean by that a little bit. For some of it, for some of us, it's that we have seen some of Christianity. Maybe we grew up going to church. We grew up in environments where the Bible was taught or we heard about the gospel. But we've left those uh, spiritual bubbles now. And the world is so much bigger. And we're struggling to see how these things fit together. Others of us, we, uh, uh, we, we have begun to see more of the world. Once we went to college, we got out of college, we started working, and, and uh, we're seeing so much more of the pain of the world, so much more suffering, so much more injustice. And what we thought we saw before, and what we thought we understood before, it doesn't quite work anymore. And life feels complicated and complex and difficult. We're seeing, and yet we're not seeing so we're seeing more of Christianity, we're seeing more of the institution of the church, we're seeing more of the world and its heartache and injustice, and we're seeing more of ourselves too, aren't we? We have more data about ourselves, we're, we're seeing uh, deeper parts of our heartache, deeper places of our longing, deeper aspects of our shame, and we're, we're starting to wonder, is the Jesus that I saw before, is he okay with that? Can he deal with that seeing and not seeing just like this man in the story and the result is that so many of us are walking around with what feels like blurred vision we just can't see clearly we we think maybe Jesus is out there but our vision is obscured now, any of you who uh, have uh, corrective prescriptions for your eyes will know this experience, right? If you wear contacts or we, if you wear glasses, this is kind of a, a common thing that happens. You get that prescription and it is good for a while. You can see the world with clarity and sharpness. Your visual acuity is sound, but then over time it goes away. You can't see so well anymore. About a year ago, I had this experience, uh, this experience with my uh, daughter, Leland. We took her to get her uh, driving permit, and she about flunked the vision test. She had glasses, she wore contacts, but it was an outdated prescription. It shows you what kind of parents we are on top of all of, uh, on top of, all of our children's needs, right? So what do you do when you, fi you find yourself in that situation? When your vision has gone blurry? Well, we have a few different options, don't we? 
I think uh, one thing we can do is we can uh, go to another person and say, hey, let me try your glasses. Have you ever done that? Put someone else's glasses on your face, and you're like, I can't see anything. This doesn't help me at all. Right. It's not a prescription that's meant for you. But that's how some of us approach this sense of we suddenly can't see Jesus clearly, and so we uh, take someone else's idea and we put that on our face. It doesn't help. There's others of us who uh, maybe are a little more desperate or a little more cynical, and uh, life begins to get fuzzy. God and Christianity begins to feel blurred, and we say, I'm never going to see again. Might as well deconstruct, walk away from Jesus, walk away from the church. There's another option, of course, isn't there? You go back to the doctor. You go back to the optometrist and you say, I can't see well, can you help? And and you see, that's the lesson for us in this passage as well. We go back to the physician. We go back to the healer. We go back to Jesus and say, will you touch my eyes again so that I can see? That's kind of the punchline. That's what this passage is leading us to understand. Now, I want to apply it a little bit more specifically to this phenomenon of deconstruction for you because I think that word is out there. I've used it several times, and it's, it can be misunderstood. And I want to try to uh, explain it to you and then redeem the idea of deconstruction a little bit. And I want to uh, explain it to you by, uh, again, giving some examples from my own life. The first time that I encountered deconstruction, I didn't know it at the time, was in a freshman seminar in college. It was, a, it was a fascinating uh, seminar. It was a class on the ethics of friendship. And we read all these ancient and then some more contemporary texts all about friendship. And the professor was this, was this brilliant man who taught me how to read a text very closely. And again, I didn't know this at the time, but he was a deconstructionist. What that means is that influenced by some of the uh, French existential postmodern philosophers, especially this guy named Jacques Derrida, he, uh, he said that the way that we can understand written texts better is to critique them and to interrogate them and to break them apart and do this incredibly close read to, to begin to see where there are faulty assumptions and, and to get behind what the text says. And so I was taught this, again, unknowingly in this seminar. And I actually think it's one of the things that has taught me to closely read the Bible, closely read other texts more than anything else in my life. And in that type of deconstruction is okay up to a point. It's actually helpful. It can be useful. It's this critical analysis that we apply to uh, words written on a page, to people, to life situations. There's another version of deconstruction, though. And this one goes a lot further. It starts with the same approach, but then it says, you know what, we've done this critical analysis, and we've done it so much and so thoroughly that suddenly all claims of truth have to be discarded. Any claim of moral value is dismantled. So fast forward a few years, and now I'm a senior in college, and I took, uh, I took another class with a visiting professor, and this professor was a, a, a wholesale deconstructionist, not just applying it to texts, but this was his life and world view, that uh, all claims of truth were relativized. 
There was no center that held for him. And so through the semester, I went to this class, and it was a big lecture hall, probably as many people in a lecture hall as can fit in this room, you know, two or three hundred people. And, and week after week, he would um, uh, suggest this deconstruction philosophy that he had built his life on. And over time, it began to register more and more, and I could see what he was doing, and I, I wanted to raise my hand and say, no, I think your assumptions are false. But it was a big lecture hall, and so I couldn't do that. Um, but, but here's what I did, and this was maybe the gutsiest move of my entire academic career, right? We had this final assignment, final paper with various questions, and I decided I'm not going to answer the questions. Instead, I'm going to offer my critique of this professor's worldview. So I wrote that, a 10-page paper or something. I still wonder what this graduate student TA thought when they got my paper turned in. Right? And they said that they were going to pass it on to the professor. But, but I felt like it was so essential for um, these assumptions in this basic starting point that there's no truth, that all moral claims are relative, that someone stand up and say, no, there's another way. These two types of deconstruction, I think, are helpful for us to understand. The ways that we can accept and embrace, number one, but the ways that we must uh, reject number two, because they lead to completely different outcomes. And I think in, in kind of, uh, in, our, in our cultural moment, when people talk about deconstruction, really they're, they're talking more about the second one. They're talking about, uh, I don't think there's any basis for truth anymore. I'm going to walk away from Jesus, and I'm going to walk away from the church. And friends, usually those two things happen together. So having explained deconstruction a little bit, let me, let me offer this. I think there's a way to redeem it where I think it's actually useful for Christians to understand. It's useful when we approach deconstruction as step one and step two is asking Jesus to restore us. That's what I mean by that. You see, in redeeming deconstruction, what we're doing is we're admitting that we can't see clearly. And we need help from outside of ourselves to do that. And that help comes from Jesus. So it becomes not whether or not we deconstruct. It becomes more a question of how we go about deconstructing. Deconstruction can be good. I mean, you need evidence of this. Just watch HGTV, right? It's demo day. All these home makeover shows, right? What happens before you put the beautiful house together? Demo day. I read this article a few months ago, and it said that demo day is basically HD, HDTV's bone that they throw to men in the audience. Because men like to see sledgehammers. They like to see, like, uh, drywall dust, you know, stuff like that. Oh, take down a chimney? Yeah, I'll watch that. But deconstruction, demolition, happens before proper reconstruction can take place. We have an example of this in our neighborhood, right? Fox Elementary. The fire last February. And uh, they're going to rebuild. But before they rebuild, they have to deconstruct all the, the damaged parts. All the parts that aren't a firm foundation, but there's still these walls, there's still this foundation that they can use. That's a visual picture of the right sort of deconstruction. 
But it's not just HGTV, it's not just Fox Elementary, friends. It's the Bible that talks about this positive version of deconstruction. Did you notice it as Brienne read from Deuteronomy this afternoon? It's commanded to the people of God that as they go into the promised land, go in there and break down the idols, tear down the false altars, chop them up and destroy them, deconstruct all of the false gods in your life. All of those things that would lead you away from Jesus, tear them down. It's commanded in the Old Testament. It carries over to us as well. This is part of the normal habit in health of the Christian life. That we would be deconstructing the falsehoods and the lies that we have come to believe. That we hold dear in our hearts. Part of every Christian life is a proper deconstruction of idols. And it's meant to lead us into a stronger, truer, fuller faith. I've been reading recently the biography of a man named Jack Miller. Many of you won't know that name either. But he was uh, profoundly influential on the lives of a lot of pastors and teachers whose names you would recognize. And he had an experience in his life when he was a pastor and a seminary professor. When he, he got to a place, kind of this breaking point, and he says, do I even believe this anymore? Does this stuff square with reality? And he went away, and he went on a sabbatical, and during that sabbatical, he deconstructed, he tore down all these falsehoods that he believed so that Jesus could touch him again and rebuild the gospel in his own heart. And then he went on to have this powerful and influential ministry, discipling many other people. And it all started with tearing down false beliefs, and allowing Jesus to touch him again. The same thing has happened in my life, and I pray that it will continue to happen in my life, right? All those false legalisms that I want to believe, and the false laws that I'll establish my own righteousness on, the ways that I'll justify myself to you and to God, he must tear those things down so that he will build me back up solely on the foundation of Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, raised to glory for you and for me. You see, this fits really well with something I've been trying to emphasize throughout this series this fall. We're talking about being sent out. Here's how it works. That as we're renewed in the gospel, we're sent out on mission. Right? We have to be renewed first. That's the deconstruction and the reconstruction. And that sends us out. But as we're sent out on mission, that also brings renewal to us. Because we see more of the world, we see more of Christ, we see more of God's heart for all people. Mission renews us, and renewal sends us out on mission. It's this beautiful, sacred feedback loop that we all must understand. All right, so I've explained deconstruction. I've tried to redeem this idea of deconstruction a little bit. Let me end by walking through Mark 8 and showing you how I think Mark 8 offers us a roadmap. Wherever you might be today, Mark 8 is a roadmap for us. First of all, if you know someone who is in this process of deconstruction, maybe they've used some language like this, maybe what I've shared resonates a little bit with conversations you've been having with them. Look again at verse 22. 
Some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. Do that with your friends. Bring them to Jesus. You can trust your friends in their heartache and their doubt and their confusion and their unbelief. You can trust them with Jesus. He's so kind. He's patient and gentle and loving and wise. Bring them to Jesus. We don't learn anything about these friends. But in some ways, aren't they the hero of the story? Their love and concern for their friend to say, let's go see Jesus. There's another wonderful little clue in this passage too, in this verse, in verse 22. It says, they came to Bethsaida. I don't expect you to know what that word means in Greek, so I'm going to tell you. It means house of mercy. They came to house of mercy, but they found the true house of mercy in Jesus. It wasn't just a town they were coming to. They were coming to the Son of God. Mercy incarnate. Loving kindness in the flesh. And they said, our friend, oh, maybe he will touch him. And he did. So if you know someone like that, Bring them to Jesus. Now, others of you, maybe, maybe you're in the process of deconstruction. You're wondering about that. You're thinking about that. I want you to look at verse 23. See what Jesus does. It says, He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. He took him by the hand. Friends, Jesus will guide you. He will guide you into a better Bethsaida, a better house of mercy. Right? He, he calls him out of the village. It seems odd, doesn't it? Until we realize that sometimes in order to see clearly, we have to get out of the place that we are. Because there are too many forces, there are too many influences, there are too many habits, there are too many ingrained postures that keep us from seeing. So Jesus guides him out and he says, you want to see? Come away from that other way of life. And then you'll see. But it goes on in verse 23 and it says that he spit on his eyes and he laid hands on him. When I was a kid, I thought spit fixed everything, right? You fall down, you scrape your knee, you're like, no, I'm good. Psst, psst. And you rub it on there like it's some kind of magic antiseptic. Am I the only one who did that? Surely no. Right? But Jesus' spit here isn't magic. He, didn't, he healed people in other places without spitting on them. Why is that detail included? It's to show us that Jesus is close. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He touches the man. He uses ordinary stuff to help him see. He'll do the same for you. Jesus wants to draw near you in your blindness, in your fear, in your shame, in your guilt. He'll come. He'll touch you. 
He'll help you. And then in verse 23 as it goes on, Jesus asks the man, he says, do you see anything? Friends, I'm convinced that that's a question that Jesus keeps asking. By his spirit, down through the ages, he's asking you today, do you see anything? And here's the danger when we're asked that question, when we hear God asking us that question, too many of us will give the answer that we think is expected rather than the honest answer. Jesus can handle your honesty. He's not afraid of it. He's not scared of it. Be honest with Jesus. Can you see? And the man says, he answers honestly, right? He says, yeah, I see people, but they look like trees walking. I see, but I don't see. I see, but I'm still blind. Be honest with Jesus. There's this one time in college where I, was, I went to the pool with some friends of mine. I had driven all of us to the pool. And I jumped in the pool. I was wearing contacts at the time. And my contacts flew right out of my eyes. I have very bad vision, okay? Back up. Yeah, that's an important detail. I didn't tell anyone that I was there that I had lost my contacts. And I drove home essentially blind. Why? Because I wasn't honest about whether I could see. Don't do that with Jesus. Be honest. And then lastly, verse 24. It's the secret to the whole passage. It's the secret to the whole gospel. Sorry, it's verse 25. It says, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. Jesus touched the man to heal his blindness. He says, what do you see? Well, I see people, but they look like trees. And Jesus touched him again. It's a second touch of God's grace. Have you received the second touch of God's grace? And a third touch, and a fourth, and on and on and on, ad infinitum. We all need another touch of God's grace. As we go through this life, as we begin to deconstruct the false things that we have uh, believed, the false idols that we've held on to in our hearts, that's the first step. And then we go back to Jesus and we says, will you touch me again, Jesus? Give me another dose of your mercy. Let me know again your loving kindness. Let me hear again your grace, Jesus. And he's the house of mercy and he gives it. There's nothing he loves more than opening blind eyes, than curing fuzzy vision. And so there's the quote that's at the top of the worship guide today, and it says, it's from this Keller article, it says, if we feel stuck between blindness and sight, between belief and disbelief, we should be honest with God and seek him until our vision clears. You know, friends, in the past, I have been a dismissive of people who've talked about deconstruction. I regret that. That wasn't right. I think uh, sometimes I've done that because I feel like it's used as an excuse just to not show up at church. But there have been a few times over the past several years where people have come to me, come to other members of our staff or leadership, and they've said, you know what? I'm not seeing Jesus real well right now. 
I don't know if I can believe this stuff anymore. Life is really hard and I don't know that this gospel has the resources to answer my questions. And with a few of those people, you know what I've told them? I've said, stay close. Stay close to Jesus. Be honest with Jesus and ask him to touch you. And for several of those people, even through their doubts and their questions and their shame, they keep showing up and they keep coming to take the Lord's Supper and Jesus touches them again with his grace. He heals them. It's what we all need. It's what this blind man needed. It's what the disciples needed. It's what you need today. Come to him. Come to his word. Wait upon him. Plead with him. Hold on to him. Ask Jesus to help you see. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, I thank you for this passage and its simplicity and how it speaks to the need that we all have to be touched a second time and a third time by your grace. Even now in this service, even now as we head to your table, we ask that uh, you would use this as a means of your grace to help us tear down the idols and false strongholds in our hearts turn to you that you might help us to see clearly to see everything clearly just like this man in Mark 8 we pray this for our good and for the glory of your name amen